All right, I want to welcome all of you to our January 19th, 2020 Sunday Sheep Gate Fellowship service. Wow, a lot of snow. <laughs> that, was, that was crazy, actually. <clears throat> um, yeah, that was a lot of shoveling. Thank you, Chongzu, for uh, making a way for not our salvation, but for the cars to park in the parking lot. Um, and for all of you who, are, who have homes and you have to shovel your driveways. Hopefully you had a fun time yesterday, or perhaps this morning. Today we're looking at and continuing our month study on Adam and Eve, right? The man and the woman. Last week we looked at Genesis 2, we looked at the creation of man and woman, and we looked at the narrative found in Genesis 2, and the nature and the goodness, and all of those sort of like... We went at, you know, last week was a little bit deep right in the theology and so we looked deep into sort of the theological constructs of the doctrine of man uh, the construct of the the people uh, the person that was adam the person that was eve we looked at the garden and the grace that was filled in that garden and we looked at how god saw all this and was good and that's where we left it we left it hanging there right um i was actually on twitter this morning i was reading a couple tweets by few reformed pastors and one of them is actually mentioned he said if god was truly just just like just just right um the bible would be two chapters long and that'll be it right <laughs> like we would fall and that would be the end of everything but we have the story of grace unfolding and so we're going to continue our study on adam and eve we're going to con- uh, continue to look at now today the unfortunate reality of the fall of the man and the woman right so last week we looked at the creation the construct of man and woman today we're looking at the fall of man and woman so today's sermon is entitled fall from grace and we're looking at genesis chapter 3 verse 1 to 13 genesis chapter 3 verse 1 to 13 Uh, let's make some space if you can for our brethren uh we're gonna look at genesis 3 and i'll read you guys can follow along as i told you this year i'm switching to the nesb so uh if you're wondering why it doesn't sound like the csb that's the reason why um so here we go genesis 3 now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the lord god had made and he said to the woman indeed has god said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, Serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
So that's where we're going to end today. Next week, we're going to look at the curse, the serpent, the man, and the woman. Today, we're looking at the fall from grace. Lots to pray about, um, as we do every week. It seems like every week we have something, unfortunately, catastrophic to pray about. But today, we're looking at India. We're looking at the Balija, a uh, Hindu group. Right? There's 1.704 million, 1.7 million of these people. You know, roughly, maybe, population almost of the GTA, or sorry, of the city of Toronto. 0.01% Christian, 0% evangelical. Uh, so we want to pray for the Balija of India and their salvation. They live in the southern regions of India, southern provinces of India. Um, and so we want to pray for the gospel to be reached to them so they too would know the truth of Jesus Christ, the Balija of India. Uh, I want to continue praying for the unfortunate wildfires in Australia. There's a lot of uh, catastrophe and tragedy that's happening as a result of these fires. And so let's pray for uh, restoration and hopefully, uh, I think the fires are starting to calm down, right? Uh, there's still some repercussions and consequences that the nation of Australia is facing as a result of this. So we want to really want to pray for a uh, hopeful recovery for all those people, uh, as well as just, I guess, the natural resources that were affected. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We pray for, um, yeah, these 13 verses to speak to us this morning in a way that would help us understand you and in light of knowing you, knowing who we are as sinner, the holiness of God revealing the sinfulness of man. Help us, O Lord, to be revealed to this truth and reality. Help us, O Lord, to desire to be uh, men and women who, who hope for a life back in grace um, and understand truly the the depth of the grace that you offer on the cross. We thank you so much for um, the opportunity to pray for India. We pray for the Balija of India, 1.7 million of them. God, we pray for the families, um, the children, uh, the men and women of this group, the southern part of India. We pray for the gospel to reach out to them. We know that there are a lot of churches um, that go to India and proclaim the gospel. And we pray that, Lord, in this nation so high in population, uh, that the gospel would begin uh, to be preached and received among uh, the people of this the peoples of this nation uh, so yeah we just pray for missionary work and evangelistic work uh, to occur and to happen through your church in the nation of india and among the groups of the balija we pray for australia we pray for the tragedy that has occurred um, as a result of these wildfires god as the now i guess the process of recovery begins we pray lord father for hopeful recovery and we pray for quick recovery uh, for families who've lost people um, for hopefully, Lord, that they would uh, find peace this time. And that, Lord, you would bring out, uh, hopefully, a uh, good resolution uh, to an unfortunate, unfortunate tragedy that has happened. Um, just coming on my mind, Lord, uh, we pray for the Philippines as well, as a volcano is causing a lot of unfortunate, um, unfortunate trauma and unfortunate uh, disaster in uh, that island nation. We pray for the families and the people who are having to evacuate homes, having to evacuate cities and towns uh, surrounding that volcano. Um, and Lord, we pray for people who have been hurt. And uh, I think there's some deaths that have been recorded as well. We pray for families and friends who have lost loved ones. And again, just in this hour of grief, that Lord, you would be with them. We thank you so much. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Yeah, our sermon, as I told you before, is entitled fall from grace and so we left our story hanging last week the creation of man the creation of woman the creation of the garden everything set apart put together in a place of harmony 
and I articulated the theological importance of this is that it is the sanctuary, the temple of God, where God was to be worshipped in harmonious, perfect fellowship. And then you have man, woman placed into this garden, set apart from the rest of creation, made in the image of God, put in that garden to be the priests, right? Adam is the priest of that garden, and he's to take care of that garden, and it is a place of grace. So that's where we begin our story this morning. The garden was a place of grace. Just happens to rhyme, it's a place of grace. It was where God had exclusively made into what we call a type of sanctuary, right? A type of temple where man and God could fellowship in perfect harmony. It was a place geographically designed for worship and for blessing. The worship of God, the blessing of man. It was where the heavens and the earth met, right? God set it apart as he did man from the rest of creation to be, remember these words, very good. Genesis 2, very good, right? And the centerpiece of this garden was man and woman. God gave them food to eat, animals to, t- uh, to care for, land to enjoy, the tree of life for immortality, and of course, total access to God himself. Adam was set as the keeper. Remember, he was given the stewardship role, the keeper of this garden and all things within it. He was, take, he was to take care of it all on behalf of God as a steward, including Eve, and he was to be fruitful and multiply along with his helper. That was the whole image we set in Genesis 2. There was but one condition that man and woman could be in this place and enjoy the grace of God. They were forbidden, if you remember, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or death would be imminent upon disobedience. That was the consequence. Before it was, eat of the tree and you shall surely die. Now it's, for the wages of sin is death. Nothing has changed. That is where our man, our woman, were left in Genesis 2. And I wish that's where the Bible ended, right? I wish that's just like, right? Unfortunately, that's not the reality. We have Genesis 3 and the rest of the Bible, right? That is exactly where ancestral representatives, Adam and Eve, would fall from. That place of grace. This place of amazing, amazing harmony with God. That's where we fell from. That's what I'm going to try to articulate today. We fell from the greatest place. Okay? And it so began the story of the Bible. The story of God's love. The story of God's plan. The story of God's mission. The story of God's redemption of mankind. To be once again with Him forever. So here's my main point for today. If you forget anything else, this is really all you need to remember. Right? There is only... Uh, This is articulated so bad. I don't know how I wrote this. Maybe it was the snow. (laughs) There is only in or out, in quotations, in or out, in terms of God's grace. You're either in God's grace or out of God's grace. And we fell so greatly from that grace. And when we talk about leaving the garden, being, being, and we're going to talk about the curse next week, but being removed from the garden and having that consequence upon us, having that spiritual death and separation from God, you know, sometimes we articulate it in such a way that it makes it seem so like, it's diminished in, in the quantitative me- measure of what it is. It is astronomical where we fell from. Like you think Christ's incarnation from heaven to earth was great, right? Like I hope so. Anyways, I tried to explain that on Christmas, right? Christ coming here, it's an astronomical, infinite, di- like multidimensional distance, right? 
our exit from the garden was like going from heaven to hell. It, it, not literally, but it's like that of a gap. It's, you're gone. You're, you're falling from the best. It's like going like flying first class your whole life and then you're like economy and you guys all know what economy's like, right? It's terrible, right? In fact, it's probably all you know, right? Like even business is better, but first class and then going to economy, it's like, like that's great. Imagine that times infinity. It's, it's a place of, it's just horrible. You can imagine the first moment that Adam and Eve exit this garden and they realize the world they now have to live in, they're probably like, wow, we screwed up. We really screwed up. And you can imagine for the rest of their life, they're just thinking, how do I get back? Right. So there's three things I want to focus on today. The deception or the deceiving of the serpent, deception of the serpent, the temptation of the woman, and then the fall of man. Those are three things I'm going to focus on, three main sort of headline points, okay? The first point, deception of the serpent. Boy, I like studying the serpent. It's very interesting. The serpent is introduced immediately in chapter 3 in verse 1 as a crafty creature. In fact, it says it's more crafty than any other. Now, the serpent <coughs> is literally, the, Greek, the Hebrew word just means snake. Just literally means snake, okay? So, what you and I commonly refer to and imagine to be a snake, that's what we're dealing with here. But remember, the bodily form of the snake was different pre-curse or pre-fall. Okay, and we'll examine that next week. So the serpent is literally just snake. And the word crafty here simply means deceitful or deceiving. It's not the bodily form that was crafty. It's not the animal, the snake that was crafty. Right? A lot of people kind of get mistaken this. It's not the creature that is craftier than the rest. But it's this particular serpent embodied or I guess possessed by what? A spirit, and that spirit being Satan. And the implicit reference to this is it's just throughout scripture, and it's obvious, and we get it so many other places, right? Now, so how do, you might ask, well, how do we know this is Satan? The Bible doesn't tell us, well, this is Satan, right? I mean, we kind of know this in hindsight. We know this in sort of, I guess, our theological upbringing in the church, and we've always just been taught Sunday school, like, the serpent is Satan, right? But how do we know this? The Bible doesn't explicitly mention this. Right? At least initially in chapter 3. So how do we know this is Satan? Well, in hindsight, it's obvious, considering that both John and Paul in the New Testament allude to Satan as a serpent, in fact. Just refers blood, like blatantly, there's a serpent, and the creature is Satan. Right? Like They just refer to it like that. Uh, in Revelation, chapter 20 specifically, and then 2 Corinthians, right? As well as multiple other references throughout the Old and, Old and New Testament referring to the deception of the serpent, um, always referring to Satan himself, right? So it's an obvious fact that the serpent proceeds right after. I mean, how do we know this is not just an animal that's being trickier than the rest? It talks right, in human tongue to the woman. If that's not a clue, I don't know what is. It's possessed by something demonic. We've seen this before in the New Testament. Remember Legion goes into the pigs, right? This is a possibility for demonic spirits. They can possess physical bodily forms. Right? We see this. So Satan has taken this form. It proceeds to talk in a human tongue, has knowledge of God. It's, it's cunning. It eventually is cursed by God, specifically this one serpent. 
And the implication is made that this serpent is, of course, in fact, a singular snake possessed by the spirit of Satan. Now, the angels were created before the earth. So, again, I want to preface this. If, if angels were created before the Genesis 1 narrative, then Satan or Lucifer's fall may have occurred prior to the Genesis creation narrative in Genesis 1, right? But some, and you can believe this because there's no, there's no explicit mention of this stuff, the creation of the angels, when it happened. But if we are to believe that the Genesis account just simply omits the mention of the angelic creations, then Satan's fall could have occurred post-Genesis 1, pre-Genesis 2, or Genesis 3. So sometime between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, God made angels, set them, you know, as sort of his army and his legion and all that stuff, and then Lucifer rebels and he falls. So we have this occurrence, either if you believe that angels were created in the Genesis narrative, then post-Genesis 1, pre-Genesis 3. Now, if you want to believe that angels were created prior to the Genesis 1 narrative, then it's possible that Lucifer's fall would have been prior to all of creation. Now, I'm going to lean towards that it's between Genesis 1 and 3. The reason being, I think, it's peculiar that Lucifer would fall and then God would make creation. Does that make sense? I think when he makes free-willed creatures with mankind, I think he simultaneously, not simultaneously, but at some point decided also to make angels, of a, not in the image of God, right? But with free will, and they fall, right? I think there's a godly purpose to all of this, right? So anyways, whatever you want to believe, um, let's just assume that angels were made at some point. I'm not just assume, it's, it's an obvious fact. They were made at some point prior to Genesis 3, and Lucifer has fallen prior to this particular sequence of events. So sometime before this, Lucifer fell. So Adam and Eve are not the first sinners. They're just the first human sinners. I hope all of that made sense. I just wanted to set the, the dating straight. Satan's angelic form and occasion for falling are outlined in Ezekiel chapter 28. And if you remember Ezekiel, dry bones rise, like that guy. It's a very appropriate place to put this story. If you read it in context, it's very interesting. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. Now, Ezekiel 28 specifically talks about the beauty of this person, of this angelic figure, and the archangel nature of this, of this figure, and how wonderful it was, and the worshiper that it was, and all that stuff. And then Isaiah 14 outlines the rebellion of this angel. Okay? So if you want to read sort of about the beauty of this angel, and then the rebellion, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. Read them together. Um, now, we know that Satan, I mean, we think of like red guy with horns and pitchfork, Okay, Satan does not look like that, okay? Just like our angels don't have glowing halos and wings and all that stuff. Um, if you actually read the text, the angels are like scary things. They have six wings and four heads and lion beards and all the, I don't know, all this like weird stuff, right? Uh, so angels don't look like anything that we think they look like. The angel that you're familiar with is actually the Greek image of the angel, of the Roman, of the Gre- Greco uh, angels. And they're like, you know, they're not angels. Those are like just babies with wings, okay? Um, and then you have um, Lucifer, who is articulated as this wonderful, beautiful creature, right? Um, and that's what the archangels are, Gabriel, uh, Michael, and Lucifer. They were the three archangels appointed to three different tasks. Gabriel, the messenger, uh, Michael the warrior, and Lucifer the worshiper, right? So they're all appointed as a third of God's army, each given a third, and they're appointed in those specific tasks, specifically archangels over an army of angels, 
or like a group of angels. Does that make sense? It's all throughout scripture. Anyways, uh, so Lucifer was that. And these stories must have been passed down since they were recorded much later on throughout Israeli culture and Judaic history, right? And uh, probably as a warning, if anything, right? So Lucifer's story is a warning that this act of disobedience, this act of defiance and arrogance before God is similar in nature to our own tendency as sinners to act against God on disobedience, defiance, and arrogance. Now note that Satan's sinful actions were not hurting anyone. They weren't hurtful against anyone, but grievous in nature, premised on what? To whom the actions were against, namely God. And the foolishness of thinking that he could be like that, or even greater than God. Does that make sense? So a lot of like misconceptions, like, oh, I hate online debates, but I, I read these all the time. It's not a sin if it doesn't hurt anyone. Why is it a sin? It doesn't hurt anyone. Why is this so bad? Why does God hate this so much if it doesn't hurt anyone? It's not about hurting people. It's not about how much it pains another. It's about how much of an act of disobedience it is against an infinitely powerful God. To whom an action is against determines the gravity of, that na- of the nature of that act of disobedience. When you kill an ant, nobody sends you to prison. When you kill a human, it's pretty bad. It's the same act. But it's to whom you've committed it against that determines the rightful punishment. So any act of defiance, sin, of rebellion against an infinite God deserves an infinite punishment. You take a life on earth, you get lifetime in prison. You take the life of an ant, you took the life of an ant. <laughs> just, no one cares. Maybe the ants care. It's like, oh, where's my brother, right? You've really disrupted the ant world, right? You've really ruined that hive, so to speak, right? So that was Satan's sin. Act of rebellion against God. Sin is sin, brothers and sisters, because God is God. And we're not. To think that sin is not so bad is basically saying God is not so great. Sin is not terrible in nature based on what repercussions they incur, but to whom it is committed against. He approaches the serpent, the woman, who was initially alone, knowing that she was vulnerable in the state, the weaker target of the two. Okay, as soon as I say this, my feminist friends arise from their seats and they say, What? Women are not weaker than men? That is not what the Bible is telling us, okay? It's not because she was a woman that she is weaker in this position. It's because... She was made after Adam and was under his care, or at least was supposed to be. Remember, Adam is made, the command is given, do not eat, and then woman is made. So what has she not heard? The command from God. Who 
is given the command and then told to take care? Adam. So who is giving that command to Eve? Adam. From God. The word of God. Like that of a prophet. Remember the prophets later? Malachi, Micah, Zechariah. All those guys. What do they say? Thus says the Lord. The modern preacher is exactly that. Now, of course, there might have been some kind of conversation between Eve and God prior or post-creation, but we're not given that record. What is being told to us here is that Adam is the one who is to make sure she she obeys this command. And he is, she's under the care. Being alone leaves her vulnerable. So, the serpent in his wisdom and his cunning craftiness asks a simple yet suggestive question. Very suggestive. Slightly twisting God's words. He doesn't say, did God say you could eat of any of the trees in the garden except for that one? That's not the question. Listen to the question. Look what he says very carefully. Indeed. I I don't know why I always read this in a British accent, but I'm like, indeed, Eve. Has God said, right? I don't know why. It It sounds like he would have had a British accent. right? It sounds like an evil British man. Um, Indeed, God had said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. That's not what God said. He twists God's words ever so slightly so that Eve now has to go on the defense. It's not, it's a yes or no question, but she has to defend it by correcting the words of, of the serpent. And that's the opening the serpent needs. Depending on her answer, he will know if she is vulnerable in this state. So cunning. And this is exactly how sin continues to corrupt us today. This is exactly how Satan continues to tempt us today. And I'll get to that. Verses 4 to 5. This is where the actual deception of Satan is made. Up until this point, Satan has done nothing wrong. He just asked a simple question. Maybe he actually didn't know. Just simple inquiry, right? Now, of course, we know, based on 4 to 5, that wasn't his intention. Eve gets the We'll look at Eve's response later. But she gives a response. It demonstrates vulnerability. Verses 4 to 5. Then he lies. He totally, explicitly lies to the woman. This lie, in fact, is the, is the thing that directly leads to the spiritual death of Adam and Eve. This is the lie. Verse 4 to 5. Here's what he says. You surely will not die. So he gets rid of the consequence. What does the world tell us today? There's no Jesus. There's no God. You're not going to hell. There's no consequence to sin. It's just our natural behavior. We're animals. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That part is true, actually. That's exactly what happens. In fact, in a twisted way, his words are right. They don't physically die, and their eyes are open to no good and evil. But the temptation is that that's better than where you are right now. Remember, we're falling from grace. We're falling from the place of grace. So this is the deception of of Satan. His lie is, there's something better, and it can only be achieved by eating the fruit. Man's fall comes from this lie. And this lie continues to resonate and echo throughout human history to this very day. 
If I ever meet Satan, this is what I would call him or refer to him. You, sir, are a great liar. You are the liar of liars. In fact, the rest of the Bible will all, like, so all of a sudden start to refer to Satan as the great deceiver. The great liar. What's so wrong about a little lie, Max? What's so wrong about white lies? Lying is not as bad as murdering. It might as well be. It might as well be. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I mean, a lot has changed, but I mean, like, nothing in its core has changed. Satan continues to play this very same game with all of us today. Sure, we're not in a garden, and sure, there's no tree we can't eat of. But his lies continue to corrupt and tempt humanity today. Every single one of us in this room. To think and, and believe this lie. That something greater than God not only exists, but can be attained. That's the lie, right? Something greater than God can be attained, something better than God can be achieved, and something more beneficial than God can be found. That's the lie. That's what causes you to sin. Sinning is pursuing an imaginary thing that is greater than God. But the reality, folks, is that there is nothing greater than God. So what are you chasing? So Satan's great lie continues to be effective today as we continue to fool ourselves in thinking that more can be attained, that more can be achieved, that more can be gained in this life, in this world, in this, in this little human thing that we're doing than God himself. Do you see this? This is the root of sin. And my prayer is that, Lord, would you have mercy on us all for thinking so stupidly? If Satan wasn't lying and something greater could be achieved, something greater could be attained than God, well, I mean, that would be God, but... <laughs> let's say something that is not God, that is greater than God exists and we can be attained and achieved, then yeah, go for it. Go after that. But the lie, brothers and sisters, is that there is nothing greater. And who knows this better than the one who thought there was something better outside of God? Lucifer himself. He falls. He falls so hard he fell from heaven. He was an archangel. He fell, and what do you think he's thinking? Well, that was a mistake. Like us? Oh, my sin. Oh, I made another mistake. Woe to me. No, you think, you think that's what Lucifer's thinking? With all the great theological knowledge that he has? No way. You know what he's thinking? He's thinking like, oh crap, I really screwed up. That's, <laughs> that was, there is nothing better than God. I'm screwed. And then what does that harbor? Bitterness, contempt, anger, rage. And then he sees God make Adam and Eve love onto them, pour grace upon them. And what do you think he's thinking? I'm going to screw these guys. Just like I fell, I'm going to take them down with me. God ain't helping me. I ain't going to help them. And so he plants the same lie that he fell into the trap of into our own hearts 
and it continues to resonate today. I believe this. I believe that the root of all sin is basically you saying you are God and you can find something better. And that is a pitiful understanding of God. Ironically, they don't die immediately, physically anyway, even though, and I'm going to argue this later, they should have. They should have. And indeed, their eyes are opened to good and evil. So everything Satan said somewhat came true. But it wasn't what they thought it would be. <laughs> For when their eyes are open and they see what God sees about themselves in their sinfulness, what they see, in fact, not brings about this glorious sensation of, I am like God now. I am man God. That's not their cry. They see each other naked and what do they do? Cover your dirtiness. For I see and feel shame. Oh my goodness. The irony. They finally get what they thought they wanted. They get it. They eat it. They see what they thought they wanted to see. And all they see is exactly what they don't want to see. Here, here's a quote. And you can guess who it is. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. I don't know if, ever, if any sermon in human history has ever done this, but I just quoted Satan in a sermon. Isaiah 14, verse 13 to 14. Those were his words. And I don't think it's any different in our own hearts. I don't. For this is the root of all sin. A pitiful, diminished understanding of God and an exaltation of ourselves like God. And so Satan took us where he was for the same exact reason. And man, was he just chopping at that bit, right? He must have been so satisfied. Like, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I got them good. <coughs> Let's focus on the second thing, the temptation of the woman. Verses 2 to 3, the response to, of Eve to the initial question, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Verse 2 to 3, Eve responds, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, and here's where the edit happens, You shall not eat from it or touch it, never mentioned in scripture, or you will die. So she inserts within the... If you eat, you will die. She inserts, also, don't even touch it, okay? Eve was temporarily alone without her husband. And in his absence and in her alone state, Satan takes the opportunity. And Eve does not disappoint him. In the Genesis 2 account, Adam is given the command to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or he will surely die. Eve is made after this command. And so it is possible and likely that Adam in his priestly role would have echoed God's command to her, being the voice of God to her in her life, but perhaps with a little bit of edit, a stern warning from Adam's part. So we don't know if this edit comes from Eve in this moment or if it comes from Adam by his own, for his own reasons. 
right? Maybe like he was like, yeah, don't e- you know what? Don't even touch it. <laughs> like just letting you know, right? Don't even like don't even go in the proximity of the tree in the case that you mistaken the fruit of the tree for something else. Like don't, you know what? Just just stay out of the middle part altogether. Okay, that may have been the case. Whatever the case, there's an edit. Eve adds on to God's initial command in Genesis 2 to not, and she adds this point, do not even touch of the fruit of the forbidden tree. Now, what might have been a precautionary measure by Adam or Eve, it backfires greatly in this sequence as it sets the ground for Satan's temptation. Eve's answer indicates an innocent and naivety to the gravity of the command of God. She doesn't understand the depth of what death means in this, in this consequence. And Satan's like, who? Here's the opening. Here's the opening. So you might ask, well, how should she have answered this question? Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Well, there's a lot of things you could have said. You could have said, not that one. Or you could have said, no, I can eat from any tree. Right? You, there's a lot of ways you could have done this. What really should have happened is Adam should have been there and been like, squash. Or Eve should have been like, well, let me ask Adam. He was the one who heard the thing. <laughs> right? Like, let me call my bro. Right? There's a lot of ways this could have gone that wouldn't have maybe resulted in it. But we can't play the what if game. That's just second guessing God's will. But this is what happened. And it backfires greatly in her face. And now the New Testament affirms, and I know a lot of times we like, like to blame one person. And I'm going to articulate to you later that blaming is exactly what we don't want to do. So we don't want to be like, it's Eve's fault, or it's Adam's fault. He should have been responsible, or she shouldn't have been there. She should have been talking to the serpent. She ate the fruit first. He ate the fruit second, blah, blah, blah. If we play this blame game and going down to the sort of details of the story, we're doing exactly what Adam and Eve did, okay? We don't want to do that. What we're really getting down to is um, just the sequence of events and what happened. What is obvious here is that Eve was left in a vulnerable state without her husband, the saint took advantage of that vulnerability. In her innocence, she ate of the fruit. And what the Bible affirms in the New Testament specifically and parts of the Old Testament is what? That Eve was deceived. We cannot, right, remove and put all the blame on one person in the sequence. Each person is responsible. Adam, the responsible priestly role, Satan, the tempter, and Eve, who was left in vulnerability. We cannot excuse any of them. They need to own up, all three. And we need to view it in that way. It's not who did worse. It's not that, like, that kind of game that we're playing here. The New Testament affirms to us Eve was indeed deceived. She wasn't acting in some rebellious mode against God. She wasn't angry against God. She, she was just fooled. She was tricked into believing the words of Satan over God's. And this doesn't diminish the horrific actions of Eve in this particular narrative. But it puts into light the irresponsibility of Adam, the cunning deception of Satan, and the foolishness of Eve. So if I had to sum up this whole fall story, it's Satan is a cunning deceiver, Adam is an irresponsible priest, and Eve is a foolish person. (laughs) That's the way I would describe it. And then you see in verse 6, once the words of Satan enter her mind, she starts thinking about it, and look what, look, look what she does. She saw that the fruit was desirable for food and wisdom. All of a sudden, that which was 
you know, forbidden becomes desirable. And she's like, what? Wisdom? I can be open to be like God? That sounds like a good thing. That sounds like something God would want for me. One of the things I hear all the time is like, I can't believe in a God that would prohibit me from doing this thing. I, don't, I can't believe in a God that would not allow me to have this thing that makes me feel so good. I can't believe in a God that would not allow me to, to live my life the way that I want to live it. And I say, well, that's not God. The God that truly loves you, the God that truly wants the best for you, is the God that would prohibit the things that you want in your life. Because they're harmful to you. We don't, in, in society, we don't applaud parents who give their kids everything they want. Right? What do we do? We applaud parents who say, good job, parent. You said no to that spoiled little brat. Discipline is part of being a loving parent. Right? Why do we all of a sudden omit that from God's nature and character? We can't. Unless we can claim we know better than God. So she grabs some for her husband and for herself and she foolishly eats of the fruit. And then she gives it to her husband. Eve was under the impression she was doing the right thing. I'm fully, con I'm fully convinced of this. I think she really thought she was doing the right thing here. Many times when we sin, we feel that it is the right thing to do. Or the natural thing to do, the normal thing to do, right? We feel like it's the right thing to do. But here's our history, brothers and sisters. It teaches us that we are not very good at determining, determining the right thing to do. We're just not good at it. God's word alone is to be the compass of our determination of right and wrong, not our feelings. It's the worst compass. <laughs> Eve's sin demonstrates a need in the human soul to long to do what is right. It does demonstrate that. But it also demonstrates we're not very good at determining what is right and wrong. Here's Tim Keller. He asserts this in his book, Reason for God. He says this about sin. According to the Bible, the primary way to define sin is not just doing the bad things or the doing of bad things, but the making of good things into our ultimate things. It is the seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship to God. It's basically saying, I can achieve what only I can achieve with God my own way. I can replace God with my job, my career, my success, my life, my family, my loved ones, my friends, all of these things. I, as long as these things are good and I can find purpose and meaning in my life my own way through the means that I have constructed, it can replace the total ultimateness of God's goodness. I don't need God. I have all of these things is basically what the root of sin is. And we do this. People do this. Why are people so desperate to receive acknowledgement, recognition, right? All of those things. Why? Why are people so desperate for that? Why is social media so prevalent in our culture today? Young and old. Why? It puts us into the audience and the arena of the global sphere and allows exposure with the potential reality of obviously criticism, but with also the potential for fame. Why? Why do we want this? Why do we desire this? 
Why do we, when at work, you do something really well, like mop the floor really well, or clean a table really well, or organize files for someone when they weren't around, or doing something that you just did out of your own good heart? Why is it, Why are you not content with just doing the right thing, but you also want recognition for doing the right thing? Why is it that people must acknowledge every good thing that you do? Why is it that you must show and tell people every good thing you do? Why is every achievement of your life, why does it have to be displayed? It's because deep down in our hearts, at the root of our souls, we always do want to do the right thing, but we want acknowledgement for it. We want to be like God. You know what's beautiful about Jesus on the cross, on the night of his, res- on the night of his arrest and his death? Silent. When the Pharisees and the, and the councils, the, Jew, the Jewish councils before and the high priests are like, who are you? Are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? They easily said, yeah, but you do need to kill me because I need to die for the world. Like, it's what he could have said. When he's on the cross and he's dying in his last breath, instead of saying, um, forgive them for they know not what they do, he could have easily said, hey guys, I'm just letting you know, you're really going to regret this later in three days. <laughs> I'm going to resurrect, and then you will know I am the Christ. Right? Could have said that. Doesn't do that. No acknowledgement. Doesn't even, doesn't even tell his disciples, write this down because I need four Gospels later. Nobody is given instruction on that. And it's during the Passover. He dies right before two million Jews are about to enter the temple. Before, not during. Eve temporarily forgot the you will surely die part and was focused on attaining something that would make her like God. Satan succeeded in planting the thought in humanity on that day that God was the deceiver. God is deceiving you. He's hiding these things from you. Don't listen to him. You can be greater than what you are now. Oh my goodness. What did I start this whole thing with? They were in the best place, in the best state. Very good. And thus, our fall. And we come to the third point, the fall of man. There are many points in this short passage where God exercises immense grace upon man. Some people wonder, is the Old Testament God really gracious? Is he really nice, <laughs> right? Is, like, I've heard some atheists say, oh, he's a moral monster in the Old Testament. Oh, he's a tyrant. He's a dictator. He's terrible. Oh, my goodness. Read your Bibles. Verses 1 to 5. Where is Adam? Why has Eve left alone in vulnerable state for this to happen? What is Adam doing that he would allow this sequence to occur? But he's not, he's not punished for this grace. Verse 6, they ate the fruit. They did not immediately physically die, even though I think they should have. I think that was the initial sort of consequence that they were facing. They ate the fruit, they did not die. Grace number 2. Verse 10, where are you, Adam? Adam hides. Coward. Grace number 3. And then he finally talks to God, and God's like, 
Well, who told you you're naked? Did you eat of the fruit? Okay, pause. All these questions that God, are, God is asking, does he not know the answer? Where are you? He's hiding behind a tree that God made. <laughs> like, come on, right? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to eat? Do you think God hasn't been observing this the whole time? Absolutely was. He knows the answer. Why is he asking these questions? Adam answers. You gave me a woman. And she gave me food. Who's he blaming? He's, he dares to blame God. Wasn't it you, God, who took the rib out of, you know, out of my body and then made this thing, this Eve? By the way, just a few verses ago, he was saying, you are the bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You are whatever, right? Oh, what happened to that, Adam? And here we find him blaming God, blaming Eve for his error. Grace number four. Is God a gracious God? In every one of these instances and sequences, I think it would have deserved righteous wrath. And God does not. Following is the curse, (coughs) as all three are cursed. The serpent, the woman, the man. They're removed from the garden, from the place of grace. And where they end up, yes, there is grace in the fact they're not, they're not like expelled to hell forever. As God starts and implements the beginnings of a promise, a promise of an offspring that will restore everything back to order. The plan goes into execution immediately. What is amazing to me is the grace of God, God, which underlies the wrath of God. Everyone who reads this text focuses on the transgression of man, the sin of man, and the punishment enacted by God, righteously, I should say. But what is implicit is the unbelievable nature of the grace of God. When they ate the fruit, they should have died. When Adam hit, they should have died. When Adam blamed God, they certainly should have died. When Eve blames the serpent, they so should have died. Never forget this. God was gracious in the garden and he's gracious today. Because it is his nature. He is not to be tested on this grace. He is not to be taken advantage of for this grace. For what is equal within God's nature and equal to his grace is also his wrath and justice and hatred of sin. Do not test our God. Oh, are you a gracious God? Slow to anger? Okay, then I'm going to do this, okay? (laughs) Get out a sin-free card your whole life? No way. Romans 7, read that. No way. That is not the attitude of a believer. Where Adam failed, Jesus did not. Where our first representative could not obey God, our second representative certainly did. Jesus did. We fell that day that Adam sinned, and we rose that day that Jesus took on sin. What this story today teaches us is that our depravity is far greater, far deeper than we tend to believe or understand in day-to-day living. We are tainted in every area of our life. The Apostle Paul in his maturation as a Christian 
certainly, one would think, has grown in his understanding of God throughout his ministry and Christian life. His love for God has expanded. His pursuit of holiness has certainly come into fruition, right? No one would say Paul of the Acts is the same Paul of Romans. He's grown in holiness. He's holier, objectively. Certainly one could argue that the Paul who was killing Christians in the book of Acts is certainly less holier than the Paul we find in the letters to Timothy near the end of his life. And certainly the Peter who denied Christ and lacked faith compares so poorly to the one who was crucified upside down for Christ's namesake. Or the James, the half-brother of Christ, that denied Christ's deity throughout his life, who came to faith and then writes the famous epistle. Certainly that is not the same James we see in terms of holiness. What is holiness? The reduction of sin, right? Increase of repentance. Certainly these men grew in their holiness, and yet, and yet, we find that they consistently, this is what happens to mature Christians, come to the extraordinary realization of their depravity as they mature and sanctify. Does that make sense to you? As they mature in their faith and as they sanctify in their holiness, they come to a greater realization of their sin. (laughs) So it's not when you become holier, you all of a sudden going, wow, I've come a long way. I'm a lot better than I was before. No, when you get to that point, you become like Isaiah, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's the mature Christian. Greater understanding of God leads to a greater understanding of my sin, which leads to greater humility before the goodness of God. Yes, brothers and sisters, they are sanctifying. But what that process ultimately reveals is the need for greater sanctification. And so we grow to know both the holiness of God in the Christian life and the sinfulness of man. And we come in that intersection appropriately to the cross where we find our Savior, our Lord Jesus. And we find a love and a grace far greater than we can possibly fathom. A love like that of our sin that runs so deep that we cannot understand. And so I conclude with this. I echo the words, Pastor Tim Keller, we are far worse than we ever imagined, far more loved than we could ever dream. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much for this time. We're able to reflect and pray.